Welcome to Aspen Health Innovators Behind the Mask. I'm Indu Subaya, co-founder of Health 2.0 and an Aspen Health Innovators Fellow. In this podcast, my co-fellow, Deb Gordon, and I speak with U.S. healthcare leaders, all members of the Health Innovators Fellowship, to learn how they're leading through these turbulent times. We get behind the masks we wear as leaders and explore the values and tensions at the heart of the decisions we make. In this episode, I speak with Patrick Hines, a pediatric critical care doctor and the founder and CEO of Functional Fluidics, a blood function diagnostics company based in Detroit, Michigan. We talk about Patrick's experience as a clinician and scientist during COVID-19 and as the father of two young black boys during the continued struggle for racial justice. Let's jump in. How are you, you know, where are you today, kind of a few months into, I've been calling it the new common era. Where are you today just as a, as a person, as a leader, as a doctor, you know, as a CEO? It's sort of like, you know, you, you train and you, you, you work on your, your craft, so to speak. And you never know when you're going to be called on to, to do something. And it's, and it's not, you don't have control over when that happens. You don't have control over what it looks like. And that's really what it's, what it's felt like. I mean, you're kind of going along and you're, by definition, a planner. And you like to kind of map things out. And this just really disrupted everything, right? So when, when COVID hit, I, I, my parents were actually staying with us to help take care of the kids at home, uh, which was you know, an amazing resource to have your, your folks at home with you. But they're both in their 70s and you know, with some health, health challenges. And I'm in the ICU seeing COVID patients. Didn't feel comfortable coming home and exposing their family to that. So for about two and a half months, I, I quarantined at a, an apartment in, in Midtown Detroit, close to the hospital. And, and that was the decision that my wife and I made in, in, a, in, in sort of a week's notice when we sort of realized what was happening. And, and, and that's, that was a, probably the most disruptive thing about everything. I mean, the, the work, the seeing patients, but uh, from a personal standpoint, that was the hardest thing for sure, because you're kind of extracting yourself from the house to, to protect your family. But at the same time, the family is I mean, going through a big change themselves with having a shelter in place, the kids are out of school, they're doing home learning. I got a nine and a uh, uh, 12 year old. And uh, you know, you can't just tell them to go hop on the computer and do their work and expect them not to be on playing Madden or (laughs) Minecraft or something like that. It's it's a lot of effort. Or or in my case, begging, uh, begging for Fortnite and getting into a conversation about why no Fortnite, you know, but. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and, and having to be the worst parent in in the world because everybody else's parent is letting them play video games all day. It's just us. Right. So, uh, so, you know, it's, it's sort of dealing with the, I don't know, just the guilt of having my, my folks and my wife having to, to take all of that on all of the craziness of having to get food and you have to you know, clean it before it comes into the house and you've got to you know, not go outside. At this point, masks are hard to find. And, you know, do you wear masks or do you not? I mean, it's all of this uncertainty that's happening, disrupting the household and, and, you, and you're just watching it on Zoom. That, that was really, really tough. 
So on the other side of that, my folks have since gone back to North Carolina. We felt a lot more comfortable having me back in the house and we sort of got a routine now. Um, man, I, I appreciate being home so much. <laughs> so how long, so the, what was the total amount of time you were uh, quarantining away from home and then how long have you been home since? Yeah, it was uh, late March to mid-June. Yeah. So it was, it was a while. Yeah. So you're just about like a month into into the, the new routine back with the family. Yeah. And, and the other part of it is just, you know, when the kids don't see you right. and, you know, they're hearing all this stuff in the news about healthcare workers getting sick. And I had healthcare work, you know, co colleagues that have developed COVID and, and got really, really sick. Fortunately, we, we, we haven't lost any, any colleagues, but, you know, it was, it was touch and go for a little while and PPE was scarce and, you know, you're just, you're trying to do the best you can. You're figuring it out. You don't know all about how, you know, the, the details of this virus. We're learning new stuff every day. You know, your family worries about you. And I, I really didn't appreciate how much they, they were anxious about what was happening with me because I was still worried about them. I was struck by what you said about, you know, you think of how do you protect your family and, and the sort of intuitive way of protection is almost like this physical protection. Like, well, I'm going to sort of physically be near my family and, and, and this sort of like, you know, I think it takes us back into who we are as human beings. Like, I'm going to barricade the house and make sure, you know, the, the, the dangerous lions and tigers don't come in. But here, you know, you were removed from the home front. And I think that's a sort of counterintuitive way of protecting. So I, I, I wonder what that was like and how you reconcile that, that you, that you were actually taking care of them by not being there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was. It's very counterintuitive. I mean, you were, you know, after about a month, I mean, I'm, I've got cabin fever. I got to get out of the house. I'm like dying to see the kids. So we started sort of doing stuff, cheating a little bit. So I would come home in the backyard and, you know, we've got this patio door and, you know, they, they have a little place set up for me to eat. I, I'd have dinner with them sometimes and I'm eating on the patio and they're inside looking at me like I'm, a, I'm in a zoo or something. <laughs> and, and it was really hard on my son to see me, you know, just outside and not a part of the family. And there, I think that was even harder than not being there at all. But over time, you know, you just wonder what, how kids perceive this stuff. And in their mind, you know, dad is radioactive. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, can't, we can't touch dad. We can't get close to dad. And, that that was a strange experience with your children and trying to help you know to, trying to appear comfortable so that they're comfortable with what's happening and but you know on the other side of it talking to your kids about it, i think it it definitely evoked a sense of anxiety in them about this whole situation i recall asking my oldest son um to ride his bike down to a friend's house to pick up some books that he had read for his like summer reading and he just wouldn't go. It's not safe. I'm not going to ride my bike. And it's just not safe out there. And this is, you know, so you got COVID happening. And then you got all this stuff with uh, uh, George Floyd and all, all of this stuff about, you know, this is, so for a kid, this is a scary time. And to see your kid go through that and to, to not be there the way that you would want to be there because you can't, because you have to, because you're protecting your family. It's, it's, a, it's a tough circle to square.
um, especially in a child's mind, you're, you're trying to, to help your kids make sense of it. Was this the 12 year old? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, and, and that's interesting. So wh where did you land on that decision? He said, I'm not gonna go and. At, so at that point, I was, I was back home. And I think a lot of that anxiety was just sort of residual from the you know, weeks and months of what had been going on before. Uh, I, I went with him. I, you know, I said, look, we'll, we'll do this together. And you know, we rode our bikes over there and, and we kind of just rode around, not just sort of straight there and back. And just getting them comfortable with just being out, right? Because one of the things I think we do with our kids in general, as uh, at least in this generation of kids, and don't get me preaching about this generation of kids, but is, is sheltering them to the point where um, they sort of lose the, the opportunity to become independent. And so, you know, they're coming into this being a lot more sheltered by, I guess, my generation of parents who don't allow their kids to do that the way that we did when we were children. And then you tack on to that uh, COVID and all of the social unrest and all of this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, you got a powder keg of, of some anxious kids that you got to sort of, you know, you realize and you're like, oh my God, what's, what's, what are we doing here? We got to unpack this and, and, and try to get back on some, some steady force. And in early June, when, when the protests and when the murder and, and when this, the time was, what is the right message, you know? to a child, do you validate that fear? You know, do you, how do you present the world? Where do you think they are now? Or, or how, what is the dialogue like now? I mean, they're, they're really bright kids. And, you know, we've seen these, you know, kind of incidents happen before. We, you know, certainly with my kids, they're, they're both, you know, black boys. And so we, we certainly have a lot of conversations about this well-preceding George Floyd. And, uh, and so they understand, you know, the kind of world that they live in. And, kind of things that they face. I, I think coming on the heels of the, the pandemic, it created an, an anxiety in them that I, I hadn't seen before. And I think because they weren't going out and weren't sort of, you know, continuously getting exposed to the world, it just became this scary thing once we just started doing it again. And so, you know, those, you just have to be really, and, and that's why being, present now. I mean, I'm just so grateful to be present the way that I can be present right now. You know, as an ICU physician, your schedule is irregularly irregular, irregular periods of time. <laughs> so it, it's, it's hard to be you know, really a, a, a constant presence the way kids need sort of that consistency. You know, that, you know, profession, so to speak, I mean, it, it just really makes that really hard to do. I, I think of kind of what you've done kind of professionally with, with going from being an intensivist to starting this company, you know, now to pivoting to testing. So when, when did that sort of light bulb come to you around getting into the COVID testing space? And what, what was that transition like? And tell me a little bit more about that. Right. I've always considered myself to be a pretty uh, sort of a, uh, prototypical physician scientist, right? And, and so those of us that consider ourselves physician scientists, I think we look at clinical medicine in a different kind of way, where you know, problems and limitations and what we're able to do don't frustrate us the way, I think they frustrate a lot of my colleagues. They, they're like, they're opportunities to figure something 
to push the field forward. And, and that's how I looked at the um, sort of primary work we were doing in red blood cell health, something we've been working on for a couple of decades since my time at, at, at Carolina. And with a lot of increased interest in drug companies developing therapies that actually modify the health of red blood cells, the work we were doing you know, quickly became a lot more vital to both the development of these types of drugs, which are sort of the first in class, first ever drugs that change the way your red blood cells behave, to now that these things are being FDA approved and physicians are having access to this stuff for the first time ever, what do we do with it? And then you know, a big part of what we did was research in addition to, to sort of building a clinical, but research was, was still our, our primary uh, revenue generator and way we validated this new thing, the new type of testing that we did. And, and when COVID hit, research becomes not essential. Patients don't come in for clinical trials. And, you know, fortunately, we were, we were doing clinical testing at the time for about a year, and we had patients that were really depending on us running these tests for their patients so that they could make real-time decisions. And, and, and COVID, for, for that indication of using the test, made that even more vital. So, so we continued to be an essential operation during that time. We never had to shut down, but a big part of what we were doing got really, really quiet. And so we have this, this excess capacity. You're sitting around, but you're looking at the world and wondering, okay, you know, we, we got to do something. <laughs> I mean, you know, people are dying in, in droves and getting sick from this virus. And, and there's this huge testing shortage. We're a CLIA lab with a lot of extra capacity. How do we, how do we get involved? How do we uh, you know, sort of help this? And, and we saw two opportunities. The first was we, we recognized really early, just being an intensivist to take care of these patients, that this was more than just something different is happening. It may enter via the respiratory tract, but there's something different happening with oxygen delivery. And as a red cell guy, you know, I immediately started thinking about what's happening with the red cells in these patients. And we had a couple patients in one of our studies of folks that were on something called ECMO, which is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, basically heart-lung bypass, when your heart and your lungs get so sick. There were a couple patients, and, and these are kids, where we weren't seeing as many in, in kids as adults, but there were a couple kids that got really, really sick and required transition to this uh, heart-lung bypass. And with, so they happened to be on a study of heart-lung bypass. We looked at the red blood cell data from those patients before they went on, and one of them had just astronomical levels of red cell abnormalities that we could measure with these you know, clinical red cell testing tools that, that we're probably one of the only labs in the world that, that do this. It, it became clear to me that if, if this damage to red cells is potentially a predictor of individuals with COVID that are likely to go down this really severe pathway, this could really make an impact. Because it's not just diagnosing people, because only a small percentage of people are gonna get really sick. The problem is when you're diagnosed, we don't know which way you're gonna go. We send you home if you're asymptomatic and we just kind of cross our fingers. And once you get sick and start manifesting symptoms, sometimes headache, which is a, a manifestation of a poor oxygen delivery to your brain parenchyma, that's a big deal. If it's my kid, I don't, I don't want you to figure that out 
when they're coming in with a severe headache, I want to figure that out early so I can potentially intervene and prevent that from happening. And if you think about that in the context of renal failure or um, you know, stroke or uh, pulmonary embolism with these coagulopathies, to the extent that we can predict these problems and intervene so that we eliminate these really bad outcomes that drive resource utilization and, and, and make it really difficult for the healthcare system to handle this, that in my mind is every bit as important as just diagnosing people to keep them from spreading it. You know, helping the people who have it uh, fare better by understanding the mechanisms of their illness better so we can intervene, not in this kind of shotgun, let's try steroids, let's try remdesivir, let's just try stuff. I, I think we gotta do better than that. And so I saw that we had a tool that could potentially help us do better than that. It was a no brainer. And then, and then being able to use some of that capacity to do serological testing on the same blood samples that we would use for the red blood cell testing was, was sort of a win-win where we, provide, we, we add to testing capacity while studying and understanding this, this novel red blood cell approach to predicting outcomes in, in COVID patients. When you first mentioned that we went as a field from thinking about this as a respiratory issue to an oxygenation issue, it wasn't obvious in those first few weeks. Remember that? There were those like kind of bizarre videos coming out of NYU, these like residents on call being like, I'm going to go down arguing this is about oxygenation. And, you know, I remember thinking, this is a paradigm shift. But you knew. You suspected, right? Yeah. yeah it's going to work. They were calling it ARDS, right? Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. You know, any intensivist, I mean, ARDS is bread and butter. And, and the, the lungs of these patients did not look like ARDS. And just because people were saying it over and over again, a, a, a lot of us in the intensive care world were just kind of, I don't know, guys, this, but it's definitely not what we thought it was in the beginning. And, and we certainly had, had hunches about that early on when, when everyone was talking ventilators, ventilators, ventilators. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to look right. back on that. And, 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 and it sort of teaches you about trusting your gut. So you go from kind of figuring out that there's got to be sort of oxygenation levels. You're studying red blood cells, for God's sakes. So then you think about this excess capacity in, in your facility and being able to test. So were there other kind of just incidental observations or yeah. just clinical observations that you were like, there is a picture emerging here? You know, I always tell my trainees that the skill of an investigator is really making observations where other people don't, right? It's kind of like, an, you know, an artist is able to sort of see things that other people don't see. And, and I see, medical investigation the same way, right? You've got to be able to make these observations. So the observation is the first step, and I tell the trainees this too. The second step, this is why we train you to be investigators, is how do you ask the right questions? And, and, and then the innovation hat that I wear then helps you think about, well, how do I innovate to create a, a solution or something that doesn't exist right now that will allow me to ask the question in a better way or to understand what's happening in a better way. Don't just limit yourself to the tools that are sitting in front of you. You've laid out this almost like textbook case of observation, hypothesis, testing, innovation, and, and you're doing it. 
But there's another layer here as I look out at we studying COVID and studying who's getting it. You know, we're seeing a lot of hypotheses, not just from the scientific and medical community, but from our policymakers. Well, you know, it's affecting folks who are low income. It's affecting folks who are Latinx. It's affecting Black folks differently. Socioeconomic issues are these access to care issues are these, you know, biomedical marker issues. And I just wonder how you navigate those sort of complex hypotheses as a scientist, but also, you know, in our social world today. Um, Are there dangers in going too much in one direction or the other with some of our hypotheses? How do we retain a kind of, you know, neutral investigative mindset, but also being sensitive to some of these other variables that might be making an impact? So I think about a couple different ways. So the first observation that you talk about is the fact that this seems to be hitting communities of color disproportionately than other communities. You know, imagine you are a family in this two-bedroom apartment that you're in, and there's multiple of you here. You've got kids. There's no yard to go out and play. I mean, you've got to play in an area that's not necessarily secure. Your options for getting, you know, fresh food and stuff for the house, because now you're home more, you probably have a job that might not be amenable to working from home if you drive a bus, if you're, you know, in environmental services or something like that you're out there working. You might have to take the, the city bus to work where you're, you, have, you, you can't social distance in that, in that context. You're, you're exposed whether you want to be or not just because you're in that environment. And most people in that, that situation tend to be people from communities of color. And, and I think that that understanding of the reality of who is getting affected really magnified sort of the social you know, determinants of health that, you know, folks like Rebecca Oni in my, my class of, of Aspen Fellows have been talking about for, for decades, but now it's just magnified, right? And then when Detroit really got hit hard in March and April, and it was scary. I mean, there are adult hospitals where, I mean, you know, <laughs> if I talked about some of the stuff that they were seeing, I mean, we probably would cut it out of the podcast, and it was mostly black and brown people. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why. And so having to sort of have a foot in both of those worlds during this time when everyone was just sort of sheltering in place and we're kind of going back and forth, it gave me a, a, a deeper appreciation for why that might be and why those hypotheses about why these communities are affected are real. And so what do you do with that? Well, if there's any indication that investing in these communities pays off for everyone. How do you balance out if, fine, there are social determinants of health that we can't ignore that are going to magnify the impact in vulnerable communities? How do we not let that overshadow if there are research-driven, you know, kind of physiologic reasons that require a different kind of resource? Maybe there are differences in, in red blood cell morphology and that deserves a different lens than just writing it off as, oh, well, we're seeing those numbers because these communities are poorer, so we're not going to allocate the research dollars there, right? So I, I just think it's an interesting tension between what you're studying and that it should be given its own weight and it shouldn't be lost in a narrative of, well, that's explainable away by a social factor. At the same time, not diminishing the social issues that you so correctly address. So 
I'm interested in that tension. I think that the, the beautiful thing about just like hard science and biology is that it's much more clean and objective because it doesn't care about socioeconomics. It doesn't care about, you know, ethnicity, race, bias, that kind of thing. It just is what it is. And you can study it and understand it somewhat in a vacuum, but, but, but not, not exactly, but, but much more in a vacuum than you can some of these social determinants. Reasons why we see some of these red blood cell unhealthy characteristics in our specific line of work is that many of the things that drive abnormal red blood cell function are also more prevalent in these communities as a result of environmental factors. One of the things that we found was that adrenaline or epinephrine is a driver of some of these changes in red blood cell behavior that makes them function and, and behave badly and cause some of these downstream problems. There's lots of reasons why these folks that are living in these you know, stressful situations have higher baseline levels of not only adrenaline, epinephrine, but a lot of inflammatory mediators that do very similar things and can, and, and can speak to the red blood cells and cause them to behave more poorly. Diabetes, high blood sugar levels affects the functional behavior of red blood cells in a way that make them more likely to deliver oxygen inadequately. Cardiovascular disease risk can drive some of this unhealthy behavior in, in red blood cells. So, so this stuff is, is interconnected. It's an objective way to sort of look at it, but sometimes you can't get away from the social determinants and some of the stuff that, that really, you know, get at the biology too. Talk about being uh, at the right place at the right time as a leader, right? I mean, this convergence of your science and your, you know, advocacy, I think is just really powerful. Patrick, there's such a potential here in, in your work, in your business as a scientist, investigator, a doctor, to use this opportunity to, to change the game, really. You know, and, and I think, um, just wondering where your, your optimism lies. I'm, I'm by definition a, a optimistic person. And yeah. I know we have the tools in terms of the, the knowledge, the skills, the resources. I mean, this is the richest country on the face of the planet. I'm hopeful in the sense that the answers are there. The way to get at those answers are in many cases right in front of us. I mean, the question is, do we have the compassion as a society to think about the whole and not just the individual so that we can actually make some of these answers real? And that gets at the concerns about mask wearing, which you know, why, why is that? that? That does not have to be an issue. That doesn't have to be, let's wear the mask and move on to the next problem. And, you know, and if worst thing happens is you wear a mask and you find out in a month that masks don't help but don't hurt, you, you had a mask on and you had to cover up your pretty little face for a little while, you know, there, there are worse things. But we get stuck. We get stuck in all these things and we, we make them political. That's where we will, uh, we will get in our own way. And, and that's what I worry about is uh, we've got solutions. We've got the people that are really studying this stuff, that are keeping themselves up at night, figuring this stuff out for all of us, uh, but we don't listen to it. I think the, the collateral effect of, of solving the science behind COVID and, and its impact on other health conditions and the funding that can come and the 
the research that can be enabled and, and companies like yours that are kind of doing double time diagnostic testing on multiple fronts. I think that's just going to open so many new opportunities, you know, for, for therapies and for healing. I'm excited for, for your company, for your research and for the discoveries ahead. And hopefully, as you said, we can take our failings, you know, which have more to do with our humanity than, than our, you know, intellectual capital and, and grow from that. So anyway, but thank you so much for spending time chatting. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> for more information on Patrick and Functional Fluidics, visit functionalfluidics.com. Thanks to everyone who made this episode possible. Emily Rubenstein, Rima Cohen, Shannon Machete, Phil Habayana, Colby Hartberg, and Deb Gordon. Aspen Health Innovators Behind the Mask is a collaboration between Deb Gordon, Indu Subaya, and the Aspen Health Innovators Fellowship. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us at Aspen Institute to stay up to date with our work. For more information, visit aspeninstitute.org backslash HIF. Thanks for listening.